And now it's time on Flame CCR to take a look behind the studio's green door to find out who is in today's chat room. Midnight, one more night without sleeping. Watching till the morning comes creeping. Green door, what's that secret you're keeping? And now, are you listening? Hello, this is Werner Fuller, and you're listening to Flame Radio. You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. We're here in Costa Coffee in Southport today. And with me is a gentleman not far from here. These days he resides in St. Helens. He is a Christian and a renowned jazz guitarist. I'd like to say a very big hello to Vernon Fuller. And my very first question is, can you just quickly describe yourself? Well, I'm 5 foot 11, I think. I've I've shrunk, I used to be 6 foot... Uh, I love music, I love dancing, I love smiling and making people smile and uh, kind of better for people to tell you what they think uh, of you. So that's a little bit about me. Okay, well, Vernon Fuller, let's go right back to the very beginning because you're not from Merseyside originally. Come on, where did it all start for you? Well, first of all, it started in Hillingdon. I was born in uh, Hillingdon, age two, moved into West London, Shepherd's Bush, and it's very definitely... QPR. (laughs) (laughs) And Vernon, did you have what we used to call a church upbringing? I don't come from a Christian family or background at all. Did go to Sunday school up until about the age of nine or ten. My mum thought it was a good thing to do, so she kind of sent me and my three younger sisters off there. But around about age ten, I just uh, didn't bother anymore. And uh, as I got into my teens, I was more interested in football, dancing, music, and girls, girls, girls. What sort of music were you listening to? I suppose the main influences were from my uh, stepdad. He kind of liked Jim Reeves. But there was also a lot of the soul artists, Atlantic, you know, people like Aretha Franklin, uh, Otis Redding, Stax, that kind of stuff. So I kind of grew up with that. And being in West London, lots of uh, kind of reggae stuff because there was a big Jamaican uh, from Barbados and Trinidad communities. I really kind of grew up with a lot of that music and uh, loved going to Notting Hill Festival and all that kind of stuff as well. You mentioned one or two record labels there like Stax and Atlantic and they were of course very much 60s American record labels that really did specialise in soul and to a lesser extent I think blues and jazz as well When I was really starting to get really interested in music for myself I was really into people like Stevie Wonder I was an absolute Stevie Wonder fan and still am people like Bill Withers Al Green and then funk groups like uh, War which is not a great name but they were a great street band they recorded um, some great great songs so I love that kind of stuff and I grew up with other people who some who went on to become musicians themselves we lost uh, Tab but they went on to do stuff and I went on to do stuff as well both independently you mentioned Stevie Wonder there and Al Green and there were so many spiritual issues being looted out there and when you were listening to a lot of this black music yep a lot of it was soul did you at any point think where does all this music come from this great creativity this soul what's the root of all this inspiration music. Well, I think it probably did. My kind of real dad was, he was an American serviceman stationed over here. So I probably had some kind of interest from that point of view. He was from New Orleans, hence a bit of a jazz connection there. And then when you listen to songs like Village Ghetto Land by Stevie Wonder and you listen to uh, some of the songs that Curtis Mayfield recorded, like People Get Ready. Oh, yeah. Loads of songs that talk that kind of uh, social commentary, and certainly in the in the 1970s, black consciousness in the states was massive in terms of trying to find their identity as African Americans or as they were then called Afro Americans. So yeah, I think all of that started feeding into the melting pot. And of course, the black consciousness of America in the 60s was very much tied in with the church as much as with politics. And I say with the church through the likes of the Reverend Martin Luther King and early Jesse Jackson as well. And so I guess with songs like Inner City Blues Makes Me Want to Holler and artists like the Staples Singers, you would have had like a gospel influence plus social comment, political commentary running pretty much intertwined, I would say. Well, absolutely. And then, of course, you've got the uh, West Indian. Indian influence, so you've got bands like Steel Pulse who recorded songs like Ku Klux Klan 
Yeah. And being a teenager who did a bit of studying of apartheid and emancipation and uh, trying to find who I was, coming from a mixed-race background, you know, sort of a black American dad and a white British mother, when I was in my adolescence, I kind of studied some of that stuff about slavery, the slave trade and the history of it. And so I had an interest in that kind of subject matter anyway. I was trying to find who I was. And of course, the roots of popular music do go back to the slave trade of two or three hundred years ago, where black slaves working in the plantation fields were not allowed to talk to one another in case they plotted the overthrow of their oppressors. But they were allowed to sing. So they started off by singing English hymns to one another. And then they used to adopt and amend the words so that they could communicate. But as a teenager in West London, Vernon, as you were starting to try and find out where you were coming from, what your identity was, where did your studies take you? I think one of the things certainly that I did look at, I looked at uh, things like apartheid, like the Deep South, and almost the difference, the hypocrisy between what some people said was their faith or their religion and what they actually did and what they actually espoused and how they lived their lives. And I found that really difficult as an adolescent to try and reconcile the two. The people that said that they had a faith, whatever that meant, because I didn't really know what it meant at the time at that age, and their lifestyle and what they actually espoused was a really difficult thing for me to imagine. And then, of course, growing up in kind of multicultural London at the time, there was a bit of a struggle there in terms of black British and black Asian, etc., in terms of finding where they fit into society. So it was kind of like a, a real mix of all those kind of things and trying to work out and not really knowing the difference between faith, religion, lifestyle, seeing the hypocrisy. And I also remember when I was kind of reading all this stuff about slavery and emancipation, I read about Malcolm X and uh, black Islam. And I started reading Message to a Black Man, which when you read some of that stuff, it's pretty inflammatory at the time. But it was one group of people's expression of trying to find self-determination at the time. Now, looking back, I know that it was the wrong, from my perspective, wrong place to look. But they were looking for answers to really rise up out of the desperate situations that they found themselves in. Actually, if you don't mind me kind of saying, interestingly, I was just listening to a documentary by Keris Matthews on the Chitlin, the history of this Chitlin circuit. And actually just listening to some of the musicians, some of them still alive now, today, and what they had to go through just to play music. They would kind of like have a vehicle full of their equipment. They would drive from East Coast to West Coast, West Coast to East Coast through the night, have to play four or five sets, sometimes get stopped by the police and have to prove that they were musicians, sometimes had to take all the equipment out of the vehicle to prove that there was nothing illegal in there, put it all back in, go back to the police station, all those kind of things. So all those kind of things really gives you a flavour of where people were at. And I suppose that all fed into where I was at at that age, you know, that kind of adolescent teenager. And when you think that even as recent as 1964, whole swathes of America would have banned black musicians from playing at certain venues. Only white musicians could have played there. And even at venues where black musicians were allowed to play, the audience would still be segregated firmly along the lines of the colour of their skin. As recently as 1964, and it probably went on illicitly and sort of secretly in America for a lot longer after that as well, seems hard to believe. But around about this time, I take it you were learning various musical instruments. You're an accomplished jazz guitarist these days. When did you first pick up a guitar? Why did you pick up a guitar? I think what probably one of the things that did inspire me was uh, Jimi Hendrix, who was obviously playing a music that wasn't the norm for a black person to play at the time. But uh, he inspired me, I suppose partly because I used to smoke then. Illegal, I hope. Well, I'm not saying anything at all. You can read into what it... (laughs) Actually, I I mean, I smoked lots of just regular cigarettes as well as maybe some of the things you're talking about as well at that time. (laughs) Um, but I looked like Jimi Hendrix, I and mean, I really oh, wow. did. You know, I had the hair, I had the moustache, I was skinny, not, not like now. I had a battered up solid body guitar, it was a real cheap thing, couldn't play it properly. But I looked the part, but I couldn't play. But he kind of inspired me, and then I, I kind of started hearing all this jazzy stuff as well. John Coltrane and Miles Davis, and started getting into that. So it's probably around about age 15, 16. I never really got music at school. Said a joker to the thief 
there's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there to drink my wine Come and dig my earth None will level on the mine Nobody of it is worth I never really understood, and it's not necessarily a criticism of the way that was taught, although that may be part of it, but I didn't get the way that it was taught, and maybe because it was not my culture. So talking about Beethoven and Mozart and Bach and all that kind of stuff, which I really appreciate the beauty in a lot of that music now, but then it meant nothing to me. I suppose the system then of speaking in terms of crotchets, minims, briefs, hemi-semi-demi-quavers, it just went right over my head. So I never got it there, but when I picked up on Jimi Hendrix and then started playing, and I think, oh, this is, I quite like this. And I always remember my mum thought, oh, it's just another five-minute wonder. You know, as teenagers, they go through phases. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then, like, five minutes later, I've stopped. It stuck with guitar. I had had euphonium lessons <laughs> at school once, but I never really got on with the euphonium. But, yeah, guitar, it stuck. I loved it. And because I loved it, 
I applied myself to it and it wasn't like work. Every waking opportunity, because it used to be football before that, playing football, kicking balls, playing two games on a Saturday, a game on a Sunday, all that kind of stuff. But once the guitar hit, that was the main thing. That and going out, as I said earlier, and dancing and trying to attract the ladies. (laughs) And of course you mentioned John Coltrane and Miles Davis. Did you find music like A Love Supreme, did you find the spirituality of that type of music began to connect with you? Yeah, I'm giggling a bit because I I mean, I, I love John Coltrane and I love all that stuff. I like the whole swathe of music that he produced, some of which, including Love Supreme, my wife says... It's your headphone music. So when you want to listen to that, you need to put your headphones on because I don't want to listen to it, which is quite funny. I digress for a minute, though, because you were just talking about it wasn't just black kids that couldn't relate to the classical music. When you consider that the drummer for the Sex Pistols, was, I was in the same class as him, and the same... Paul Cook. Paul Cook, yeah, and yeah. I was in the same year as Steve Jones, the guitarist for Sex Pistols. And then I used to kick uh, football with the bass player for Culture Club, Mikey Craig. I used to uh, be more friends with his brother, Greg Craig, who was in a band called uh, Funkapolitan. But me, him and Mikey used to kick ball and hang out in their house and that. So when you consider just from that little a small nucleus of friends or colleagues or fellow students, it really crystallises what you said in, in terms of they wouldn't really relate to that classical kind of uh, education in terms of music. But yes, uh, John Coltrane, Onette Coleman, Miles Davis. I don't only love the bebop mainstream stuff, I really like the avant-garde stuff, which some people say they can't even play their instruments, but I, I love all that stuff as well. Yeah, it's right up my street as well, but I digress. Vernon, you were learning jazz guitar and probably becoming quite proficient at it. Where was God in all of this? Or was God just not on your radar around this time, early to mid-70s? You know what, I'm not entirely sure. I look back and there's uh, some songs that I wrote, one's called Nightlight. There's a light and it's talking about this light and it's talking about love. Could I articulate that as being God? And if I could, what would that mean to me? Probably not, but I, I, I look back at the lyrics like that and I think, well, I, was, I certainly had some kind of an understanding or maybe some kind of searching for something or someone but didn't actually know what it was and couldn't crystallise it. So I suppose short answer is no, but looking back at the lyrics that I wrote, I think there was an element of searching there and maybe there was something from the days when I went to Sunday school that was there but I didn't realise. The only prize I ever won at school <laughs> was a book, you know, Black Beauty. <laughs> and I won it for RE, for religious education. So I must have known the answers to some of the questions or something to have won the prize. So maybe I had some knowledge, even if I didn't have any kind of relationship. Vernon, therefore, it begs the question, when did God break into your life? Or when did you first realise that God was there? It's probably around about age 31, 32. I'd recently joined a American multinational. I was a credit manager and I changed companies. I was going to work for an American company, which was going to be just down the road. We were living in Southall at the time. So it's going to be like just a 10 minute walk down the road, which was going to be fantastic. And then uh, they offered me the job, but they said, but we're not sure. We may stay where we are or we may relocate to a place called Nuneaton. And I was like, okay, no idea where Nuneaton is. I was kind of a typical... Not to offend any any Londoners, but I was a typical Londoner then in that I didn't even know what was north of Watford, never mind Watford Gap. So uh, I said, oh, okay, I'll have a chat with my wife. So uh, when I got home, spoke to my wife and we looked on the map. I thought Nuneaton was in Scotland. It it sounded vaguely Scottish to me. I don't know why. But we worked out, okay, it's in the Midlands. And then uh, the company was offering a relocation package, paying all the legal expenses, removal costs. And we were going to move from a three-bedroom kind of tatty, semi-detached into what turned out to be, you know, a four-bedroomed, detached, new build, you know, new schools, great area and all that kind of stuff. So it started from that, really. So I started travelling up during the week, staying in a hotel, working until we actually got a place. And it coincided with getting the children into school in the uh, September. And so that's what we did. And our next-door neighbours, who were moving on to the new build, because they were Christians, we didn't know that at the time, they said, whoever moves next to us, we are going to nail our colours to the mask and tell them we're Christians and what that means to us. So that's what they did. We'd moved 100 miles north of London 
didn't know anybody. Family was young. I started working ridiculous hours because we were recruiting for this new department and we were expanding rapidly, the company I was working for. So uh, my wife started going to Mother and Toddlers, which they'd recently started in the Baptist church. And then we started going on Sunday to the services because the only people we knew were our next door neighbours, really. And we started to get to know a few Christians. And then they found out I was a musician. I missed my music friends in London. So they said, do you want to come to a music group, worship music group? Yeah, all right. So, you know, go to a practice on a Friday night or whatever. Start learning all these songs. And then eventually say, do you want to play on a Sunday? Yeah, all right, I'm going to be there. So I started playing in the worship team on some Sundays. I wasn't saved, so I didn't take communion. If anyone had a problem with it, because I wasn't a believer, all that kind of stuff, I was still searching. No one said anything to me. God protected me. So if anyone did have an issue with it, it didn't come to my ears. And so I began to feel that I belonged in the same way that my wife started to belong because she went to Mother and Toddlers. And she'd also started going to a Bible study, a ladies' Bible study. And the ladies' Bible study, they were studying James. James is very practical. My wife is very practical. If it had been some of the Pauline letters or flowery stuff, probably wouldn't have connected with her. And so as a result of that, we both felt that we belonged. So that's how the journey started. And then I just started reading loads of books, obviously hearing these sermons asking loads of questions of our friends, the pastor and stuff like that. Interesting to hear that you belonged before you believed, but eventually you were to make that belief your own. What actually happened to become a believer? Well, after basically asking loads of questions, reading loads of books, hearing lots of sermons, there comes a point where, I think, a point where you uh, can make a decision or not. Do I believe this stuff or don't I believe this stuff? I built up this relationship with people, got to know people. And it was one night, everyone else was upstairs, in bed already, and I was downstairs on my own in the the front room, and I just decided that this was true. You know, it was true that Jesus had died for me, that Jesus had died to take away my sin, that Jesus had died that I could actually live a life, eternal life, when I died, but actually I could live a life now that was going to be different to the selfish life that I'd lived before. Even though I may well have thought I wasn't selfish and, you know, thought that I was a pretty upstanding, you know, individual and that I'd come out of a, a household where we really scrimped and scraped because my mum worked really, really, really hard. She was a single parent for a lot of the time. She brought me and my three sisters up. So we were on the kind of social DSS and all that kind of stuff that time and free school dinners. So I kind of thought I've done really well. I've done well because I've got my wife, I've got my family, we've got this really nice house, I've got a good job. I've pulled myself out of that situation. But actually, although that was all good, it wasn't enough in the end. So I I just knelt down and I asked Jesus into my life. And from that point on, I started developing and strengthening and deepening my relationship with Jesus. And is that something anybody can do? Ask Jesus into their life? How do you do it? There's no formula. I mean, the basic is to recognize and to know that Jesus died. He really did exist. And he really is and really was a man and God at the same time that he did die, that he died a sinless death. He wasn't like the rest of us. And that because he died a sinless death, he died in our place. He died as us. So that all the sins, everything that happened up to that point that he died and everything that happened after that, every wrong thing that we say, say, think or do, he died for that. And that meant that uh, Father God could actually look at us as if we were his sons because we'd been brought back into relationship to him because of Jesus. I mean, it says in the Bible that, uh, you know, Jesus looked beyond, he looked beyond the cross for the joy set before him. He actually looked beyond the fact that he was going to hang on a tree and that he was going to have nails, he was going to be beaten and all that pain and everything that he faced. Some of us look at that and think, how could you endure that? How could you do that? And you don't even deserve it. But he did it because he saw beyond the cross. He saw each one of us and the fact that we would be reconciled to Father God and that we would enjoy a life that he bought for us. Now, it's a choice and I made that choice. I don't know if that makes any sense, but there's no formula. It's basically recognizing that Jesus died for his sins, asking for forgiveness, saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my life as my Lord and Savior. And from that moment on, and then tell someone and get people alongside you to help you on the journey. It doesn't mean that everything becomes wonderful overnight because we live in a, a world where there's lots of stuff happening and people partner with stuff and do stuff but it means our perspective changes we see things in a different way and as we grow deeper in our relationship with Father God with Jesus and as that person who makes that commitment develops a relationship with the Holy Spirit to help them to live a life that Jesus wants they change 
And it's not like having a rule book where we have to modify our behaviour. It actually, we change because we want to. I, I know that having been married for nearly 40 years now that I can't change my wife and she can't change me but there was a significant period of time where we both tried to do that you know we loved the person that we married but we wanted to change them in some ways because there's bits about them we didn't like it's a bit like that now I don't do that with my wife I remember once saying to God I don't understand Pat and he said you don't need to understand her just love her and that's exactly it as we love uh, God more we want to please him so it's not an effort. It's not like I have to modify my behavior. I want to do what pleases him. So I begin to do it. And I ask for help to make that process even more a reality every day. Do you always get it right? No. But the great thing is the grace of God and the goodness of God leads to repentance. And I'm right back in relationship with him. Thank you for that, Vernon. Just as you were saying all that, sitting here in a cafe in Southport, looking out, as you were saying about Jesus being able to see beyond the cross. Wow, that really was inspirational stuff. That was when you became a Christian and you became born again that night at home before you went to bed. That wasn't the end of the story, though. Where did God take you from there onwards? Well, a month and a half later, my wife gave her life to Jesus, and um, I'll let her 
in other forums, you know, share her story. But ultimately, in the end, we went into Youth of the Mission, joined Youth of the Mission. That was us uh, and our four then young children. So we've got an eldest girl, twin sons, and the youngest daughter. And so we went into YWAM, did a discipleship training school, went on to staff, lived in community, went overseas a bit, did some outreach and stuff like that. Eventually moved back into our home, sold it, and then moved with YWAM up to St. Helens, did a community counselling uh, school, uh, got involved in debt advice, money advice, financial education with Citizens Advice Bureau. I became a trustee of Citizens Advice Bureau after taking voluntary redundancy six years ago, and I'm very much involved in other things as well. Wells of Revival Prayer Team, uh, Aglow International, Men of Issaca. I could go on, but that's kind of a real quick uh, <laughs> whistle-stop tour. Did you still keep playing music and did your faith start to influence the music that you played and the music that you wrote as well? Well, yeah, well, I suppose one story that encapsulates it, before I moved up here and I was still playing in the Midlands, I was playing with a couple of bands, but one of the bands, really great band, I really like playing with them, Coventry-based band. In fact, the drummer was the drummer with um, Selector. Wow. So, you know, we kind of like uh, did some stuff. But the, and the guy who, who headed up the band, some of his lyrics, I began to realise I couldn't subscribe to some of the lyrics that he had written and that he sang. And so I love playing in the band and I, I, I love, you know, playing with the guys. But in the end, I had to say, because of my faith, I couldn't reconcile it to some of the lyrics. I can't even remember what the lyrics were now. So I withdrew from the band. I said, I'm, I need to leave because of my newfound faith and because of, of these things. Because obviously I, I didn't want to impose my faith, my standards, my beliefs on somebody else. But nevertheless, I had to go with a clear conscience when I'm doing a gig. So in terms of moving to uh, the Northwest, I think it took on another level. I started playing a lot more doing a lot more becoming a lot more confident at playing solo not just in bands so that's been really good and i suppose that the key thing is i have to be very careful when i'm looking at songs that i might do and being aware of the lyrical content of what i'm communicating so i bear that in mind whenever i'm kind of looking at songs and song lyrics that i'm aware of that occasionally I, I might pick something and maybe a few years later i might think oh i'm not sure that i should be singing that either uh, that's again part sometimes of my journey and revelation you know as to where I'm at and that's not a judgment on anybody else it's just me and what I'm comfortable with singing because if I've got Holy Spirit living in me then that will bring a sense of uncomfortableness and unease if it's something that's opposed to God's standards and God's values and God's goodness and God's kindness and God's love and God's mercy (laughs) one example of that I do lean on me yeah who was that originally? That was Bill Withers. Yeah. And of course, Bill Withers has a, a gospel background. I've heard your CD of covers, okay. which has got tracks by the likes of Marvin Gaye, yeah. tracks like Inner City Blues, Make Me Wanna Holler. And so each time before you choose to cover something like that, you go through the lyrics very carefully, very discerningly. I certainly try to, yeah. In fact, I was singing one recently, and it might have been Lean On Me, because I do it in community singing as well. Because it's a great song about people kind of relying on other people, you know, for help and support. But, of course, there's another message that you can bring with that as well. I think there's one bit in it that talks about tomorrow. It'll always be tomorrow. And I've done this song for ages, and it's recently it's like, well, actually, we're not guaranteed our tomorrows. You know, so scripturally, we don't know that we've got a tomorrow. And literally, this has only been in the past week or two weeks. So I'm thinking, well, I think I can still sing that with integrity, but always recognise and perhaps where I can say we don't always know although the song says this we're not always guaranteed a tomorrow so just bear that in mind and what that does that can plant a little seed in people's heads whether it's a Christian setting or not and that just shows you that sometimes our understanding grows because that's not something that I've thought of before and I've sung the song loads of times but it's only in the the past week or so that I've seen that and thought actually that is not scripturally true we are not guaranteed tomorrow so there won't always be tomorrow so that actually we need to seize the day carp dm this is really good thought-provoking stuff vernon when you are performing in a shall we say more secular kind of setting what sort of reaction do you get from your audiences when you do not just tracks like lean on me but also when you provide a little bit of commentary I think for me it's more actually communicating God's love. So wherever possible I try and bless people. So for example, I'm playing a venue. I did one recently in Churchtown here, a jazz trio gig, and I encouraged the diners, the guests, the drinkers to give a round of applause to the staff. Just saying thank you to staff for them serving you, for looking after you and that. And I do that quite often, and I do it quite deliberately. And I know the, the promoter afterwards, oh, that's a good move, that. That's really good. That gets them on your side, the staff. 
And I, I didn't actually say anything to him because I understood why he was saying that. But it's not a ploy on my part to get the staff on my side. It's actually a means of valuing the staff and reminding any of the diners or customers or clients, if they need reminding, of the people that are doing sometimes a really difficult job. Because we can be quite demanding as customers, can't we, sometimes? And so it's from that motivation that I say it. The byproduct of that is obviously really nice in terms of the staff feel valued in terms of the relationship with me but the real motivation is to say they're doing a great job you know they're, they're working hard they're serving you let's show our appreciation and just to see some of the bar staff in some of the places that I play when they hear that for the first time it's like oh he's talking about me he's talking about us and it, you can see them kind of like rising up a little bit and actually it brightens their day and I remember going to one place in Stoke that I've played quite a lot. I went in there recently and said, oh, so glad it's you tonight. And that's because of the spirit that we carry. It's uplifting. And people can't necessarily put a, a title on it or a label on it, but we know what it is. And it's actually, if we're helping someone to feel better about life, that's the spirit of God in us, enabling and encouraging others. That reminds me of a Christian group from quite a few years ago, the ubiquitous Fat and Frantic. They had one or two minor hits at the end of the 80s, Fat and Frantic. Often when they would play a certain venue in London, which at the time was called the Town and Country Club, but I think is better known as the Forum in North London these days, they played there quite a few times. And apparently the staff knew that they were Christians because they were so much better treated and respected by Fat and Frantic and their crew than by any other band who played at the venue Vernon you also write your own stuff as well as being an excellent man of covers can you talk a little bit about your own material and what sort of lyrical concerns of your own that you've got I'm just going to get my glasses out to read one or two of these uh, sleeve notes because uh, advancing years and all that kind of stuff <laughs> is that a song title yeah, that could be couldn't it yeah advancing years and all that kind of stuff <laughs> my wife laughs at me because uh, yeah a lot of uh, the songs certainly in the early days all about it's love 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 basically so here's one that I wrote called Love Will Come To You I co-wrote this with a friend he's no longer with us and that was just a love song but actually if you unpack it and I didn't realise at the time it can be talking about a perfect love that can come to you a perfect love that can cast out fear another one here that I wrote on my own not with anybody else called Your Love Is My Love you can see this theme going all the way through I'm doing some of the covers here and, and quite a few of them have got the word love in them but then there's uh, the, the album called May The Lord Answer You and a lot of those songs on there are based on psalms and some of them were written when I was in North Africa with different organisations doing stuff that was really rewarding a lot of those songs came out of a dry period I wasn't writing and I went to a few worship things and uh, got prayed for because I kind of dried up in, in terms of writing songs and went off to North Africa and came back with uh, you know, a handful of songs, all pretty much based on scripture. Then I've got a song here. Another one, this is an instrumental version of it, but there is a vocal version on another recording of mine called I Have Loved You. There's that word again. <laughs> Can't get away from that word. There's a cover on there called Love Ballad. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and then, just recording, but the, the one prior to my uh, digital EP, uh, well, this one, What Will You Do album, all songs that I've written, but uh, here we go, If We've Missed Each Other's Love, <laughs> If It's Love That You Need, Love Isn't Love. <laughs> love Isn't Love? Yes, that sounds strange, but if you, if you hear the song lyrics, it kind of makes sense. The Best Of Your Love as well, and that's not the uh, old uh, soul hit, that's my song with the same title. So you can see there, on out of 16 songs on this uh, What Will You Do album, in terms of the actual t song titles, four of them have got the word love in them. <laughs> All you need is love. <laughs> One track of yours, which I am familiar with at the moment, I think it goes for the title, I Cried and You Heard. I cried and you listened. I called and you heard. That is effectively my testimony song. I called and you heard 
I had ignored your challenge. I had ignored your word, and the thought had never occurred to me that I was one of your loves. I reached out in desperation. Total darkness. I was clad. I had walked away from your brightness. I'd ignored your promises, and the thought had never occurred to me that I was one of your loves. Your challenge. I'd ignored your word, and the thought had never occurred to me that I was one of your loves. I reached out in desperation. In total darkness, I was clad. I had walked away from your brightness. I'd ignored your promises, and the thought had never occurred to me that I was one of your loves. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be Thy name. Forgive me, Lord. May I never be the same again. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be Thy name. Forgive me, Lord. May I never be the same. Never be the same. Never be the same again. So what I was saying earlier, when I was talking about when I got saved, that just talks about that process. That's a song about that process. I cried and you listened. I called and you heard. And it, it talks about I had ignored your promise. I'd ignored your word. And the chorus part goes into part of、uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that we should pray: "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Forgive me, Lord. May I never be the same again." So that's in the chorus. But really, yeah, that is the song that encapsulates my conversion experience. So, although that crystallised on that one night, May the first, nineteen eighty-eight. What happened was that was at that point the culmination of all that had gone before in their lead up to that. All those sermons, all those books that I'd read, all those questions that I'd asked, all those things that I'd、uh, seen or watched about Jesus, where it, it was no longer Jesus, little baby at Christmas, where it was actually Jesus, the man, Jesus, divine, <laughs> Jesus dying for me, not for the world. He did die for the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You know that whosoever believes in Him will have eternal life. But for me, it was me. It was personal then. So that song reencapsulates. And I'm, I'm really thrilled that you remember that one and think of that one because that is, you know, just talking about it now. You can probably hear it in my voice. It's still real. He's still real. He's good. God is good. And、uh, many people will listen to this that do listen to it, and other people who read stuff, and they'll say, "If God's a God of love, why? If God's good, why?" 
and the honest answer I can give to anyone who asks me that, I haven't got all the answers. I can tell you my experience. I can tell you the truth of my encounter with God. I can tell you that there's still stuff that myself and my wife, our family go through that's difficult. But God's good. My perspective has changed. I don't look at those things in the way that I would have looked at them. I don't look at those things in a way that will crush me or destroy me now. I look at them in a different way. And I know that I've got a family of other people, like-minded people, brothers and sisters who love Jesus, who go through their own stuff. But together, we support each other, we encourage each other, we love each other, we point each other towards God and what God says in his word. When people say if God is a God of love, all I can say is just look at what Jesus did in terms of being beaten, having a crown of thorns stuck on his head, having nails driven into him, hanging on a cross, dying the death that he did. That's God Almighty who did that. So if he was prepared to go through that, then me, who lives in a world that I believe is a world that is crying out for God, even if we don't always know what that means, in the same way that I didn't know what that meant before I went on this journey and God drew me to himself, he sustains me. And so if anyone's listening, obviously feel free to get in contact with the studio and ask more questions. God doesn't make us into puppets or robots. He gives us a a brain and he gives us free will. And that's probably the biggest mystery as well, is because we sometimes want to have all the answers. I know lots of us want to have all the answers. If I had all the answers, I'd be God, and I know I'm not. (laughs) You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. My name is John Cheek. Our special guest today, I'm privileged to say, is the Christian, the musician, the jazz guitarist, Vernon Fuller. Vernon, life at the moment is very full for you. You're very much in demand as a musician, as a jazz guitarist. You're often playing in Liverpool, St. Helens. You're doing all sorts of things. And I know that you've been doing a bit of evangelism in Liverpool just recently. You mentioned Jesus the Man. You're also getting more involved with Christian men's groups. Can you say a little bit more about that, please? And something called a glow... Yeah, well, Glow International started off with four women in the States who got together to pray, and uh, out of that sprang uh, meetings of women around the world. I think they're in something like 170 different countries now. And as a result of that, because some of the men were like, well, we want to have some meetings like this as well. So they kind of started off having a few meetings and getting together. Probably about a year and a half, two years ago, a Glow International in the States appointed Dave McDaniel as the coordinator for Men of Issaca. Men of Issaca from 1 Chronicles 12, uh, which talks about the sons of Issaca. Men who knew the times and seasons, who understood the times and seasons. And it was, I suppose it was a little bit of a rebrand. Uh, one of the mandates for a Glow is male and female female reconciliation where male and female are one and that there's no division and so that rebranding i think was very much uh, god inspired god given because what's happening now around the uk and other countries as well groups of men of Issaca are starting to spring up so these are groups of men who uh, gather together to pray share testimony share each other's burdens eat food (laughs) very important for men to eat food and to (laughs) have a time of worship maybe someone share a word so there's a group starting in Peterhead, there's an established one in Ayrshire as well. There's a group in Southport, North Wales, down in the south, Manchester, Manchester Menavisica. Menavisica St Helens, which I've recently been ensconced as the uh, president of, had their launch in June. Here's some of the things that some of the guys have said. Excited and expectant for Tuesday. I thought it was amazing. This is a place for men to come together where I can be myself, where men can find their identity and be men of compassion and hope. It's a space to build each other up. Another guy said, The group has the favour of God. Each time we meet, there is something wonderful happening. It makes me think of the Bethel song called Thank You. The chorus says of God, You don't have to come, but you always do, and you change the whole room. I'm learning with God's guiding to relate, to share, to bless and be a blessing to all I come into contact with and being helped by the ladies of Glow and the men of Issaca. I felt great freedom in worship. Another man at the first four meetings said that this is where I feel called to be. And really, the whole mandate is a place for men to bring men in as part of their journey with each man burning brighter with the love and light of Jesus. In fact, you could almost say men who are aflame, aflame, aglow with the Spirit of God. 
Okay, Vernon, if any guys or girls are listening to that and thinking, I'd like to know more, is there a website address or an email address? Yeah, Menavisica. Yes, Menavisica, a Ministry of Glow International. So really, if they just Google a Glow International, the UK website is uh, www.aglow.org.uk. They'll have a link on there to find out uh, details of what's happening about the groups that are meeting. And as I say, Menavisca is one of the things God's using for blokes to get together, Christian men to actually share at a level they may not always get the opportunity to, but eat lots of food as well, and actually get out into the community as well. It's not about just having meetings to get people in, it's also to get people out to share the love of Christ in whichever way that God is specifically says. Vernon Fuller, you're a Christian, you're a musician, you're also a jazz guitarist. And if people want to hear some of your stuff, if they want to get in touch with you... Uh, yes, yeah, they can go to vernonfuller.com or they can go to www.reverbnation.com slash vernonfuller. They can go to Twitter, which is fretjazz. That's Fred Jazz. <laughs> and uh, yes, I'm on YouTube as well, so they can uh, pick up some stuff some stuff on, on YouTube. Basically, if anyone wants to find me, they just need to put Vernon Fuller in and Google, and they'll find uh, some links to uh, my music. I'm on iTunes and on, on Spotify as well, and Amazon MP3 and lots of other digital platforms as well. So if anyone wants to put a few pennies in my pocket as well through that way, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> And you mentioned Reverb Nation there, and yes, lots of Christian artists have found a platform with Reverb Nation. Vernon, one final question as our time is almost up. If you could very briefly just answer this final question about this God that we've happened to mention in the last hour or so. This God, what's he like? Wow, that's a big question. Uh, how long have I got? <laughs> About two minutes. <laughs> okay, two minutes. What's he like? I can only say, from, obviously, from my personal encounter. I was born at a time just after the mid-50s, and I've mentioned earlier that my dad was a serviceman, so I wasn't born with a, a mum and dad who were married, which carried some stigma in those days. I think that stigma, because of the way society has gone, has changed a lot, and some of that is good in the sense that people are not ostracised and victimised. So, for me, it's about, ultimately, identity. Because there was a time when I was young, I really wanted to find my dad, my real dad, you know, see him, meet him, see what he looked like, talk to him. That never happened, and that left a hole. But actually, when I became a Christian, when I got saved, and that whole process through Jesus and the Holy Spirit and Father God, I know who I am now. I'm comfortable in my skin. I'm secure. I'm joy-filled, and I try and spread that joy. So for me, Father God is someone who says, I think you're amazing. There's a song that Godfrey Bertel, who's just been here in Southport at the uh, conference, that says, do you believe what I believe about you? And it's the Father singing to us. And the chorus is, I say, I think you're amazing. I say, I think you're amazing. I deliver confidence courses to people who have anxiety and depression. And uh, there was one lady this uh, last session who only felt valued when she did stuff for people. And I said to her, you have intrinsic value. This is not a Christian course. I said to her, you have intrinsic value before you even do anything. You are valuable before you do anything. And she really struggled with that concept. But right at the end of the session, she said, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to think about that. That's it right there. God says we're valuable. We're treasures. We're the apple of his eye. Even before we do anything, he loves us. You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. I'm delighted to say that our guest today has been Vernon Fuller. Vernon, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, lots of love to you all. See you soon. Bye.
child, but I am your child. I count myself among God's own. My heart just sings. I know I'm His. To trust Your ways every day brings me such hope. Brings me so much bliss. To be clear once for all, it's all for. I'm a man on a mission. I'm God's envoy. For now. This is Vernon Fuller, and you're listening to Flame Radio. Esto es un reto preguntándote: ¿Qué quieres lograr en la vida y cómo lo vas a lograr? What will you do to make your life a better one? What will you do to show that life? Has just begun. What will you do to make your life a better one? Yeah. What will you say to give yourself a better day? What will you say to make the good times here to stay? What will you say to give yourself a better day? Love will come to him who wait, I'll wait for you.
vas a hacer tú? ¿Qué voy a hacer yo? ¿Dónde voy a ir? Viajar el mundo. Seguir mis sueños. Alcanzar mis sueños. Sé lo mejor que puedo y estar contento. We've closed the chat room door, but please tune in next time to Flame CCR on 1521 Medium Wave for more from Green Door Studios chat room. Green Door! We hope you enjoyed this program, which is under the copyright of Wirral Christian Media Limited. Details of the Flame CCR broadcasts and webcasts are on our website, www.flameradio.org. Thank you for listening. Flame.